0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome once again to the Packernet Podcast. I am your host and resident fanalist, as always, Ryan Schlipp. Check us out online, packernet.com. Find me on Twitter, pack underscore dada. Well, believe it or not, um, we're still in the depths of the depths of the depths of the offseason, but at the same time, it's kind of beginning. I think I had mentioned before, um, maybe I didn't mention it on the podcast, I mentioned it to somebody. I don't know, but... The term, the calm before the storm, certainly applies to the NFL. Um, If you want to know the absolute darkest and slowest part of the offseason, it's probably the day before everybody shows up. Um, I wake up this morning, and this is—the podcasts are all kind of jacked up right now. But anyways, whatever day it happens to be, I woke up this morning looking for news anywhere. There is none. There is one entire report for the entire day— In the last 24 hours, there's one thing and it's not very interesting. Not saying there's no articles, although there's very few of those either, as far as just, you know, people writing garbage. There's not even hardly any garbage anymore. But people are um, beginning to report. The Buffalo Bills rookies have um, reported. I'm recording this on the 18th, whatever. As well as the uh, Las Vegas Raiders have reported on the 18th and 19th, when I'm planning on posting this, but who knows? Because I cannot get that straight, apparently. The Atlanta Falcons rookies, the uh, Baltimore Ravens rookies, the LA Chargers rookies, the Patriots, Saints, Giants, Jets, all reporting. And although we have several days until training camp starts or whatever, the Green Bay Packers rookies have to be in Green Bay. On the 22nd. So we're getting there. We are absolutely getting there. It's not to say that there's going to be any news. Maybe we'll get a couple people sneaking some pictures of rookies walking into a door, you know, I mean, not physically into the door, I mean, walking up to and hopefully uh, past a door that is open. <sighs> but from that point, it's four more days until the veterans show up. So we got a week. We got a week. And apparently, it sounds like uh, Madden leaks are starting. So that's good. I just saw the first a second ago. Raiders wide receiver Devontae Adams will have a 99 overall rating in Madden 23. It's the second consecutive year Adams has a 99 overall rating. So that's nice. But why don't we do this? Why don't we finish off this sharp football analysis thing? I say finish off because I'm assuming we will, but I guess I don't know that. But um, they have player, um, he has player, what am I talking about? Team breakdowns. And so I want to look at the Packers. We might dabble with some of the rest of the NFC North just because it's, you know, it's always funny. But I want to start with the main overview just because, I don't know, I like it. Again, a lot of this is just about orientation. What, what is your understanding of things as they are? We read the article a couple days ago about the guy that clearly just hated Aaron Rodgers. And, and again, anytime you see that, it's like, well, this is a useless article because he's flat out saying, before I get started, I just want you to know I hate Rodgers, I hate this team, and I have no ability to be unbiased. Um, He starts off just kind of, it says Greenback Packers overview, and it's mostly just about Aaron Rodgers, some of the cool stuff he's done. Uh, For example, 500 pass attempts and five or fewer interceptions. Only three times in NFL history has a quarterback not named Aaron Rodgers thrown 500 pass attempts with fewer than five interceptions in a season, but five times Aaron Rodgers has thrown 500 pass attempts with fewer than five interceptions in a season, including four years in a row, 2018, 2019, 2020, and 2021. He goes on to say, it's been remarkable to watch Rogers seemingly rededicate himself off the field to greatness on the field, and for the seemingly non-conventional approaches to nutrition, exercise, and training pay off for him. The reason I like that, beyond the stats, just that last uh, paragraph, I guess it's a sentence, whatever, is partially because it's true, and what's true is what matters, but it's again the orientation toward what is your understanding of things. Most people want to look at what Aaron Rodgers is doing and, and mock him. He's goofball. He's a whack job. He's crazy. How about we understand the reality that this guy has had a revival in his career? You know, it's like if somebody said they're going to, you know, start a little business or whatever, and you kind of roll your eyes and you're like, okay, yeah, I'm sure that'll work. Sounds like some scammy pyramid, schemey, stupid thing. I don't know what it is, but it sounds dumb. And they start making massive amounts of money. And I'm not just talking about faking it on on Instagram or whatever, just lying like a lot of those uh, pyramid scheme people do, like, Oh dude, I'm making so much bank. It's crazy, like I don't even have to work anymore, and they're completely broke. But actually, actually making a lot of money. It it, it doesn't really make sense to sit there and continue to mock them and what they're doing in their practices because it's clearly working. Right? So I'm just saying. Goes on to say what I had said, uh, Packers and Aaron Rodgers uh, and Matt Lafleur haven't disappointed in the regular season. In fact, the Packers are the only team in NFL history to win 13 games for three straight seasons. There's a uh, many, many paragraphs going on to document the Devonte Adams thing. We don't need to get into that because we've already discussed that and what happened there. But they do make an interesting point. And if you listened to, um, I guess, two days ago or whatever on Sunday, there were four podcasts that dropped. on On Monday, there are maybe one, I guess. And then this is scheduled to go live on Tuesday. So two days ago, when I did the Packernet After Dark podcast, Jacob called in and he said, um, after talking about the office a little bit, Watkins or Watson, who ends up having essentially the better season? And I went with the optimistic view that Christian Watson would be the guy. I want to read this here because it kind of plays into that a little bit more. Um, Again, anything can happen. We don't know what's going to happen, but... It is important context. It says, They added 29-year-old Sammy Watkins to the mix. Context on Watkins. Off of the 2019 Super Bowl and looking to repeat, the Chiefs made Watkins take a salary cut to remain on the team in 2020, and they happily let him walk after that season. The wide receiver Needy Ravens signed him to just a one-year, $5 million deal and happily let him walk out the door at the end of the season. We're talking two Super Bowl contenders in the Chiefs and Ravens, and we're talking about a cheap receiver, and neither was willing to keep Watkins around. And and I would also add, as they said, wide receiver needy. Both teams are contenders, both teams need wide receiver help, and neither team was willing to pay very, very little amounts of money for Sammy Watkins goes on to say, if Watkins is unlikely to pay off, it falls on to Christian Watson. That was the other thing I mentioned on there is it feels like those two are in direct competition. And I think they are. There, there, there's a, kind of a couple different ways to look at this. And Romeo Dobbs, and, and there are some other scenarios in which maybe this isn't the case, but if Lazard is the number one guy, then it kind of falls on one of those two guys to be the number two sort of MVS type. But it's also entirely possible that Lazard isn't the number one guy. He kind of remains in his role as that that complementary number two blocking, kind of good receiving guy. And we're looking for who's going to be that number one. And it's still a competition between Watson and Watkins at that point. Again, Dobbs, maybe. But based on that, you can't help but feel like the Packers... Although Sammy could be the guy, and yes, the Packers want to ease people into things, it's also possible the Packers also view Sammy Watkins on a, you know, they're not super high on him, just like these other teams. They, they gave him a shot, but it's not meant to be a long-term thing. It's a short-term fix. In other words, they really want Christian Watson to be the guy, which means they may be pushing him a little bit more. This could be a, um, you know, and, and I, I don't know why they don't try that. This is how you learn, and I understand at the end of the day this is just about winning and we want the best guys on the field, but look what happened with Eric Stokes. If it wasn't for the injuries, what was the guy going to do? Sit on the bench and then what? What a waste. Now in this year we need him and we got him and he's experienced and that's awesome and that's important. Even Royce Newman, the guy wasn't very good, but he got a full year of experience and now, you know, he seemed to get better at the end of the year. There's every reason to believe he's going to take a big step. If you want a guy to, to, to thrive, throw him out there. Don't hide him. You know, A.J. Dillon, we lost a, a, an entire year of, of that guy. You know, and instead of a, a big second-year leap, we're looking at a third-year leap. I mean, he had a fine second year. I'm not saying he didn't, but as far as just exploding onto the scene potential, it's just a waste of a year. Amari Rodgers, same thing. I got an article coming out, or it probably already came out by the time you hear this, but it's about Amari. And, you know, it, it, obviously, if you analyze the data of of wide receivers that are similar to Amari and what where he was drafted, and how he performed as a rookie, the outlook isn't great. I mean, flat out, anybody that gets drafted, the outlook isn't great. You add in third round, you add in very little production in year one, and obviously what's left is not a ton of super elite players. There's a couple, but you're just slowly filtering out all the best players. But some of that isn't his fault. You know, I'm filtering out guys that got 200 yards as a rookie. How many yards would Amari have gotten if Randall Wakab wasn't there and he played every single week? he would have gotten what 300 yards, 400 yards and then we're having a completely different conversation about comparing him to guys with 3 400 yards and now all of a sudden there's a much better outlook because it's not about talent in that case it's about the packers being willing to put him out there and there is some overlap you know if he was better he maybe would have gone out a little bit more but you know you learn by doing that's just the bottom line you can put him in the meetings and and then you know well i, I had him read the book and then we go practice and he seems like he still doesn't understand and so i guess he doesn't play you know what? Oh, well, you know, Rogers is going to be mad at him. Oh, well, that's how you learn. Get him out there. I don't know. Just a thought. I'm, I'm, I, I guess what I'm saying is I hope they push Christian Watson to, to that spot. Sammy Watkins is not our future. Christian Watson is. Trial by fire. Put him out there. I don't care. Maybe he's bad for three, four, five, six weeks. So what? Keep him out there. Every down, every play, run the route. Get it. Get it in your head. Figure it out. And then the the other important thing is it's not just that you're not getting practice on the field. If you're not in the game plan to be on the field, you're not going up against Jair in, in, you know, on the practice during the week. You're running scout team nonsense. Again, same with Amari. He wasn't practicing much because he wasn't in the game plan. He's not getting meaningful reps against our number one defense. And in practice, he's not going up against, you know, NFL teams on, on Sundays. I don't want Watson to have the same experience Elton did. I don't want Dobbs to have that experience either if I could help it. Put him out as often as possible, and, and and Amari too. Get them out there. And if you play him for a year and they suck, then you know what? Maybe this just isn't going to work. We don't have enough space on the roster to keep putting you out there and you keep messing up, so we're going to start pulling back your time. Fine, but start from the top and work your way back. Don't expect them to come out of a meeting room just dominant. Like, well, once they, once they seem to know what they're doing after – you know, years of meetings, eventually when it clicks, then we'll start giving them time on the field. And then they go on the field and they suck because reading a book has nothing to do with going out on the field and playing. And it's like, well, that was a mistake. I thought you knew what you're doing, but I guess you don't. And Now you're going to lose all your time. It's just, come on, man. It goes on to say the Packers are um, trying a bold strategy in 2022 to pair Aaron Rodgers, the most expensive quarterback in the NFL, with the seventh cheapest wide receiver core in the NFL. Fair enough. Goes on to talk about the offensive line. Again, something that's overlooked. It's not just... It's, it's kind of incredible how many people we lost last year and still got to 13 wins. And everybody wants to focus on, yeah, you lost in the playoffs again. How did we even get to where we got? It says the offensive line was injury-riddled. David Bakhtiari appeared in just one game. Elton Jenkins appeared in just eight games. Josh Myers played just six games. Again, another area that you can expect improvement. Anyways, the rest of the overview, and it's a massive overview, um, kind of, I guess we don't really need it. It's, it's kind of stuff that we already know. But if you're if you if you're, we're in a coma or just not a Packer fan, want a good overview of how things are going or whatever, that's, that's pretty solid. Um, I want to look at, there's a ton of, as we've been going through this, uh, charts and graphs and everything else that's going on. I want to look at a few of these. First of all, they talk a little bit about the uh, forecast wins and whatnot. Packers are projected to win 11 games this year. The interesting note here is that we were projected to win 10 and a half last year. So we actually had a surprisingly lesser outlook last year than this year. And we obviously got 13 wins and we were projected 10 and a half. So we're on better footing than last year at this time. They've got one thing here that says they're forecast to win 11 games. Why bet the under and why bet the over? So there's a couple different bullet points. Number one here, and we talked about this, but it's been kind of a while, um, Green Bay is last in net rest edge in 2022, with 12 fewer rest days than opponents, playing five games in which their opponent has more days of rest versus two games in which the opponent has less rest. The Packers play the Buffalo Bills and Dallas Cowboys coming off of a bye and play opponents with an extra day of rest in weeks 16 and 17. So they are um, dead last in terms of how the schedule is laid out. Not in terms of the team they're going up against, but just in terms of, of, well, rest. Next bullet point, it says the Packers' salary cap allocated to the quarterback and dead cap combined is 8.3% from 2021. The salary cap squeeze played a role in the Adams trade. I don't know how true that is, but the roster is no doubt worse without Adams, and adjusting the offense for a couple of games versus an entire season would be more difficult for an offense that relied on moving the ball methodically and efficiently. Finally, in 2021, the Packers were the largest Pythagorean overperformers. The Packers finished with 13 wins and overachieved by 3.2 wins and finished 5-1 in games decided by a field goal or less, aided by a third-best turnover margin. The Packers could see regression in close games in 2022. Essentially what they're talking about there is these are all sort of markers of things that aren't sustainable. At another point in the um, overview that I didn't read, it was talking about how we were aided by the... um, our past defense maybe looked better than it was because of the opponents we had to go up against. So a lot of garbage rookie quarterbacks, um, some backup quarterbacks that were in instead of you know guys like Pat Mahomes and and whatnot. And so you can't really count on those things. It also went on to say the Packers were eight zero against uh, rookies and backups, and we're only I think five and four in games in which the starter that wasn't a rookie or a backup played. So you know a, a lot of these things where. If it doesn't pan out that way again, obviously the Packers' record could completely fall off. Not just, you know, not quite hit 11. It could be kind of bad. As far as why bet the over, in other words, more than 11 wins, the Packers led the league in EPA per drop back in consecutive years with Aaron Rodgers. While Aaron Rodgers has led all quarterbacks in EPA, plus CPOE, whatever, metrics, in both years. Intuitively, the loss of Devontae Adams would give cause for concern. However, Rodgers has not had a drop-off in play with Adams off the field, as his EPA per dropback has been 0.25 with Adams off the field versus 0.23 with Adams on the field in the past two seasons, with the Packers going 3-0 in games without Adams. Obviously, we know that that's higher than 3-0, and but um, just looking at, I guess, last year. Second bullet point. Head coach Matt LaFleur has won 13 games of each in his first three seasons and finished first in 2020 and third in 2021 in fourth down aggressiveness. Packers are likely to have a coaching advantage early in the season as four of the first five opponents have rookie head coaches. Finally last year the Packers finished last in the league with minus 57.66 EPA on special teams along a negative differential of 7.96 yards per kick return, 4.8 yards per punt return. The hiring of experienced special teams coordinator Rich Pisaccia, uh, positive regression should be expected in kick return stats in 2022. The Packers also finished last in field goals made over ex- expectation. Okay, and are due for positive regression. So kind of similar to the other thing, where it's it was the special teams was unsustainably bad, and it's it's nearly impossible that it's going to be that bad again. Some of this stuff is out of order, so I'll just take it as I see it. But one of the interesting little charts that they had here is uh, first down, second down, and third down success rate based on passing and rushing as well as uh, league average. The interesting thing is the Packers actually outpaced league average in first down, second down, third down rushing and passing. So, uh first down passing 57 compared to 54, second down 51 compared to 47, third down 39 compared to 37. So, the Packers did a better job and had a higher success rate than the league average. They also had a higher yards per attempt and higher passer rating in each, but that's also actually true of rushing. In fact, third down success rate compared to the league average is probably the biggest outlier compared from the Packers to the league average. So, on first down compared to 48% NFL average. Second down, 51% compared to 50%. And third down, the league average success rate is 53%. The Packers were at 71%. It's actually the highest of any down of anything. Second highest is first down pass rate, 57%. So the Packers were insanely good on third down running the ball. And success rate obviously depends on what we're asking them to do. But typically on third down, you're looking for a first down. Uh, We've got the 2022 weekly betting lines, which is actually pretty interesting. I have a hard time finding this uh, breakdown of every single week and and how the Packers as of right now um, are are where the betting lines are for each of these. As of right now, the they have a two point advantage over the Minnesota Vikings, nine and a half points against Chicago, the only two games in which they are well, actually Are you serious? Oh, it's plus zero. Never mind. The only two games that they're considered underdogs is against Tampa Week 3 and Buffalo in Week 8, which is understandable. But again, despite all the, the talk about the Packers and, you know, you guys failed and you don't have wide receivers and blah, 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 blah. When you put your money down, when, when money's on the line, all that talk is, is moot, right? It's easy for, you know, some reporters who don't like the Packers to pop off at the mouth. But the people who have the money on the line, they're, they're singing a different tune. Patriots, Packers, five point advantage. Giants, seven points. Jets, nine and a half. Washington, three and a half. Uh, Detroit, six. Makes me smile that Detroit has a. Um, Detroit's better than Chicago. Dallas, four points. Tennessee, four and a half. Philly and LA, they have at zero. Miami, one point. Minnesota, five and a half. Detroit, eight. Looking at home games, the Packers are favorites in every single game except the Rams game where they're um, it's essentially a push. Tampa Bay and Buffalo the two underdog games are the two are also road games so it's entirely possible that if the if that was at home the Packers might be favorites probably not but could be one note again not tied into anything we've talked about just kind of random but it's it's pretty exciting it says no one generated pressure on non blitzes at a higher rate than Green Bay and that's something to keep in mind as well when we look at pressures and and things like that not all pressures are the same when teams that are really good at bringing pressures a lot of times these are guys bringing multiple people. And you know, it it takes a certain team to be able to execute that and all that. But at the end of the day, if you look at just rushing your four or five guys or whatever, nobody was better at just straight up vanilla pass rush than the Packers because they have good pass rushers. 32.8%, a particularly important stat in Joe Barry's defense, which ranked in the bottom 10 in blitz rate. In other words, he just doesn't do it very often. That production helped boost the front seven into the top 10 in our unit rank, despite struggling run defense that will rely on two rookies to get things back on track. The Packers' secondary was a unanimous choice as the league's top unit, kind of just going through the the rankings and all that. So I guess we don't need to get into that. But it also kind of, and I don't know if that's going to change. Maybe he really likes having, you know, all those guys in coverage. We're not going to bring extra guys because we don't need to, and that's great. But it just kind of opens up the door of what if we did? That number of 32.8% goes much higher if you bring an extra guy. Somewhat of an interesting chart here. I don't really know that it means much, but it's kind of fun anyway. Looking at usage rates based on how the game is going. For example, being blown out, down big, one score game, large lead, or blowout lead. For example, looking at rushing. Obviously, most of the time, games are within one score. 71% of the time, um, the Green Bay Packers were within one score. Just at any point in a game. Outside of that, though, whether we're being blown out, no, it's not really true, down big, large lead, or blowout lead, it tended to be A.J. Dillon. So on average, when we were down big, 9 to 13 points, uh, that was 6% of the time. Aaron Jones is on the field 3%, A.J. Dillon 9%. On the flip side... When we have a large lead between nine and thirteen points on average, that would be fourteen percent of the time. Aaron Jones was only used ten percent. A.J. Dillon eighteen percent. And when we have a blowout lead, which was six percent of the time, Aaron Jones four percent. A.J. Dillon nine percent. So I mean, again, you can try to make something out of that and say, well, that makes sense, especially with the lead. We're just going to try to grind them down with A.J. Dillon. The crazy thing though is Aaron Jones is a one-score master, right? When when everything is just going fine. We're in our normal game plan. It's all Aaron Jones, 71%. AJ Dillon is on the field only 62% of that time. Aaron Jones is 81%. And the crazy thing is that happens also with passing. And obviously, we're dealing with a lot more people than just two. Aaron Jones, AJ Dillon, Devontae Adams, Alan Lazard, MVS, Randall Cobb, Side Aguirre, Mercedes Lewis, Robert Tunyon, Equinemia, St. Brown. 71%. Again, we're in one score leads. Pretty much everybody is 71% or lower. In fact, only Devontae Adams was at 71%. Everybody else was lower. Aaron Jones, 91% of the time, 91% of snaps, more than Devontae Adams at 71. It's a massive leap. I don't know what that means or why that is the case, but we're, when we're within one score, Aaron Jones does not come off the field. It's such a weird thing. However, let's look at a couple of the other ones because maybe you can figure out what it means. I don't know, but I find it interesting anyways. Being blown out, 14 points or more. On average, it happened 4% of the time. The big outliers? MVS, that makes sense. You want your deep threat on the field. Robert Tunyon, I guess, similar concept. And then kind of Alan Lazard at 7%. MVS was 11, Robert Tunyon was 10. When you're down big, 9 to 13 points. On average, that was 8%. The big outliers here, Randall Cobb, 15%. Josiah DeGuara, 18%. Equinemius, 12%. I can't make heads or tails of that, but there you go. There's your information. Aaron Jones, by the way, 1% when being blown out, 1% when down big probably because you don't need your running backs on the field nearly as much. But even still, A.J. Dillon, 5% and 5%. So it's not that we didn't have guys out there. It's just that we didn't have Aaron Jones out there. When we're down big, Aaron Jones does not come on the field, not very often. And A.J. Dillon, I mean, even 5% when we're being blown out, that's higher than the average of 4%. So he's on the field more often than not. Um, And then large lead up by 9 to 13 points. That's uh, 11% is the average. The big outliers here, Mercedes Lewis, Alan Lazard, and a little bit MVS. And so again, you kind of see that heavy, the big boy package kind of thing going on. Now, A.J. Dillon, not on the field, all that, it's 5% still. And then finally, big blowout lead. And, and the the large lead, it's still kind of average. Most people are around 11, so you're kind of still running your normal offense a little bit with a little bit more heavy personnel type of thing. But then big blowout lead, 6% is the average. you got three major outliers. A.J. Dillon, 16%. Again, obvious reasons. Robert Tunyon and Equinemius St. Brown. Equinemius probably a lot more because you're just pulling your receivers. Tunyon, I don't know. We're running the ball and he's blocking, maybe? I have no idea. I don't know why that's maybe he's also out there as a as a faux wide receiver. So kind of interesting. And and, and again, the one the, the most interesting to me is the running back usage. That's kind of crazy to me. If it's a one score game, it's it's AJ Dillon or excuse me, it's Aaron Jones. As a receiver and as a running back, he is the guy. If things start to go haywire, AJ Dillon is the guy we're bringing in on either side of that. Anyways, there, there's a massive amount of stuff here. If you're interested in getting it again, it's Sharp Football Analysis. I think it was like thirty bucks. I mean, there, there's everything here: target, just target distribution, positive play percentage, heat map, Aaron Rodgers. Rating on early downs and position on the field, 2021 standard passing table, 2021 advanced passing table, interception rates by down, third down passing chart. I don't want to go through all this because it's kind of boring. I mean, it's boring to read. It's interesting, but it's also only interesting if you are kind of looking for something. They got a defensive tendencies chart, which is kind of cool. The base 20%, nickel 56%, dime 24%, rush three only 2% of the time, rush four 77%, rush five 19%, rush six 2%, blitz 21%. So, I mean, stuff like that, I think, is kind of cool. They rank fifth in uh, how often they were in dime. They rank fifth in teams that rush four, 29th in teams that run six or more, rush six or more. Again, they don't do it often. They got a cool chart, almost kind of like a heat map of um, snaps played as the weeks went on. So they got Devontae, Lazar, Jones, Lewis, Dylan, MVS, Cobb, Josiah, and Tunyon, and how many snaps they played each week. But the color coding kind of makes it cool because you can see who kind of trended in one direction or the other. The two guys that really stand out in terms of their um, snap counts continuing to trend upward, AJ Dillon and especially Josiah Deguara. Josiah is just a straight line going up. So that's that's pretty encouraging. Um, if anybody kind of trended down, it would be maybe Aaron Jones, maybe a little bit Mercedes Lewis, which makes sense if AJ Dillon goes up, Aaron Jones goes down. If Josiah goes up, Mercedes goes down. Now, a lot of Josiah's going up has to do with the fact that Tunyon was was done, but not exactly. It's not a direct correlation there. If you look at it, Tunyon was out starting in week nine, and Josiah actually went down one game, uh, one snap in that game, from 16 to 15 snaps. It wasn't until the next week when he started to go up, and then it wasn't until week 12 that he really started to crack into some serious snaps. We're, we're four weeks into Tunyon being out, before Josiah really starts to hit his stride, getting 35 snaps, 37, 35, 33, 30, and 29 to end the season. Again, a lot of good stuff in there. I'm going to leave it at that. If you want to check out more, you can. It'll be a good resource if you guys have any questions or anything. Well, why don't we go ahead and take a break right here, come back and look at a few other things. Patreon.com forward slash back underscore data if you'd like to support the podcast. If you'd like to advertise your business or whatever, let me know. Remember to check out mercyandme.ca to buy some uh, sweet baby gear. Otherwise, we'll take a break and we'll be right back. We all have smartphones, and we all know they're pretty amazing. But they also can be amazingly distracting, especially when we're around other people. So U.S. Cellular wants us to reset our relationship with our phones by putting down our phones for five. That's right. A company that sells phones wants us to put down our phones. And to see what we find, learn more at uscellular.com forward slash built for us. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. So like all things, I don't want to give away everything in terms of, you know, I just did an article um, over at the Packernet Substack. But I figure I'll, I'll, I'll give away one little tidbit. Just just for those of you who are like, look, I I, I understand Amari, might not be great, but just give me a name of a guy who had a similar path so that I can shut up people that keep wanting to trash Amari. I'll give you a name. I can give you a couple names if you want. No, I'll give you one because, you know, there's more in the article. There are some better names in this, but let's go with this because he's a fourth round pick. So it's, it's kind, of, kind of similar, but also a little bit worse. So I, you don't get the, well, he was a second round pick, you know, rebuttal, I guess. But he was a rookie in 2004 for the New York Jets, played in 12 games, but started zero. Amari, for the record, played in 16 games and started one. He was targeted 11 times. He caught six of them for 60 yards and zero touchdowns. Second year wasn't all that much more impressive. In fact, a lot of the more promising prospects that you can look at had year three breakouts. It's kind of unusual. But year two, uh, played 16 games, started one. 32 targets, 19 receptions, 251 yards, zero touchdowns. Still not super great, right? At this point, I promise you, if this is Amari, they're going to be saying bust. Year three, played 16 games, started 16 games, 125 targets, 82 receptions, 961 yards, and six touchdowns. The next year, 15 games played and started, 127 targets, 82 receptions, 1,130 yards, and two touchdowns. Next year, 805. Next year, 803 touchdowns, that is. All in all, he played one, two, three, four, five, six, seven years for the team that drafted him before he moved on to another team, at which point things started to fizzle a little bit, but not a bad situation. The guy, by the way, is Jericho Cotri. Now, I'm not describing Devontae Adams to you, not giving you, you know, Jerry Rice, but this is a solid contributor. This is a guy that clearly has had a better career than what we've seen from Lazard and MBS and guys like that. Not to mention he played for the Jets. So if you're just looking for a name to to quiet the skeptics, there you go. Jericho Cotri. If people want to chuckle at it because they don't remember how good Jericho Cotri was, just tell them Vincent Jackson, all right? 59 yards on three receptions as a rookie. Played eight games, started zero. Didn't hit 1,000 yards until year four. Just saying. But it did kind of get me thinking because clearly, if you look at the top of the top wide receivers, they didn't start off with sub-100-yard seasons. They, they weren't all great, but you had Devontae with 400-some-odd yards. And you do have some. I mean, granted, they're usually older. Um, Cal Hubbard and Red uh, Badgro had zero, but those are both 1927, so, you know, whatever. But Cliff Branch, 1972, had 41 yards. I'm looking at Hall of Fame wide receivers. Charlie Joyner, 1969, had 77. Chris Carter, obviously a phenomenal football player, Hall of Famer. Um, as a rookie, played nine games, started zero, five receptions, 84 yards. Lynn Swan, it's a big jump, but 200 yards. But the, the the point is, as I look at these, and there's 34 guys here, again, only a couple had real, real big numbers. Randy Moss, 1,300 yards as a rookie. Bob Hayes, 1,003 yards as a rookie. Jerry Rice had 927. But that's kind of the point. What What is the the market which we can say, okay, you're in that territory of maybe you're going to be real, real good. I'm not even necessarily talking about Hall of Fame, but... I would say sub 200 and it's not looking great, right? But let's look at recent history rather than, you know, back in the day when passing was a little bit different. Nowadays, we got guys coming out, jumping at a thousand yards, like it's nothing. But if we look at the top receivers, what kind of seasons did they actually have? And I think it's important because we need to set realistic benchmarks. You know, there's sort of a feeling of if Christian Watson plays and he gets 500 yards, I guess I'll take it, but that sucks because I want him to be a 1,200-yard receiver. Well, there's a difference between being a 1,200-yard receiver and you know, starting in the NFL as a rookie and getting 1,200 yards. That's a whole different benchmark. It's kind of similar to what what we looked at with um, pass rushers, and I did an article on Rashawn Gary that was similar. There are a handful of guys that hit the league getting 15 16 17%, 90-plus pass rush grades as rookies. But that's a whole different category of freak. It's not as though... Everybody who's a good pass rusher does that. In fact, most really, really good pass rushers do not start that way. TJ Watt is probably the maybe the best pass rusher in football right now. He was a year three guy, or year two, I guess, I think. And so I picked a lot of guys, 20, 25 different wide receivers um, for different reasons. Some of them are the top right now. A couple of them have been top guys very recently, even if they're not necessarily right now. Julio Jones, Amari Cooper, those types of guys. But I just want to look at their rookie seasons and kind of how it projected out. Again, a lot of this is about career arc, and everybody has their own arc. Some guys hit the ground running a million miles an hour, some guys it takes a couple years, but there's also going to be a couple benchmarks. Like I said, with Amari, there are some, some players that give you hope, but at the same time, if you look at just about any of the top wide receivers, pretty much none of them had 40 yards. Doesn't mean he can't, and yet yeah, special circumstances and all that stuff with not getting opportunities and Randall being there and all that stuff. Fine. I'm, I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying based on data, probably not going to be the next Devontae Adams. So first is Cooper Cup, who might be the best wide receiver in football. He had a real crazy year. I doubt he'll be able to maintain it. But again, 2,425 yards receiving in 22 touchdowns is stupid. But his rookie year was 938 yards. So he didn't quite crack a thousand, but clearly this is the the a whole other benchmark, right? We're not talking about getting a slow start as a rookie. Devontae Adams was a little slower. He had 570 yards. I said I said 400 and something, but I think um the additional came in the playoff game against San Francisco. He had 90 yards. But 500 yards the next year, 500 yards and it wasn't until year 3 that he cracked 1214. But again, it's still 500 yards. Justin Jefferson, we know Came into the league 1,400 yards the next year, 1,600 yards. The guy is, he's he's next level. He is sort of that Khalil Mack type, that Von Miller type that hits the ground running. Day one, I'm the best in football, and it's like, okay, fair enough. A.J. Brown's another one, 1,115 yards, and he's maintained that every year. Debo Samuel, kind of similar to uh, Cooper Cup, 929 yards. Didn't quite crack 1,000, but he may as well have. He only had three touchdowns, but still... Again, it's a it's a good benchmark of, okay, this guy's probably going to be pretty good. Antonio Brown, 167 yards. Nine games, he started zero. Remember, he was a sixth-round pick. Somehow, the very next year, he, started, he played 16 games, only started three, but still cracked 1,100 yards. I don't know how that's even possible. But I think we can probably put this in somewhat of an outlier category. Antonio Brown has got some off-the-field issues. Certain caveats that you can put in place to say this is why his... Rookie season maybe was a little deflated, but it still kind of gives you some level of hope on, on, even if you put an asterisk next to it, you can say, hey, 167 yards, technically doesn't don't count them out. Tyreek is another one that had his kind of year two breakout, but 620 yards as a rookie. So there, there seems to be kind of a recurring theme among top receivers so far. There's either guys that hit the ground and are just crushing it. So, you know, 900, 1,000-ish yards, and then there's guys who are at the 500, 600 range and then kind of break out. Seems to be my observation so far. C.D. Lamb, 900 yards and then 1,100. Falls right into that category. T. Higgins, 900 yards, then 1,400. There you go. D.K. Metcalf hit the ground running, 1,100 yards. Falls into that top category. Tyler Lockett is it kind of interesting, actually. 700 yards in his first year, 500, then 500, and then 1000. So he still falls into that second category of kind of being at the, you know, 5-600 range I guess, but it took him 4 years to kind of break out from there. But still, he's a breakout guy that had 700 yards as a rookie. So it still technically falls into that second category of, you know, mediocre stats. Stefan Diggs, 746 yards as a rookie, then 900, then 1000. I mean, if we're calling a solid 1000 breakout, then it took him until year 3, although 900 is pretty much breakout at that point. And 700 is pretty high on that end of the um, mediocre spectrum anyways. But still, he falls into that second category. Stephon Diggs does. 700 yards as a rookie. Eventually, he's an every year 1,000-yard receiver. The last, what, five years? 1,000, 1, 1,000, 1,800, and 1,300. DeAndre Hopkins, year one, 800. The next year, 1,200. So kind of in that second category of high You could maybe break it into three categories, mid, high, and then hits the ground running at 1,000 yards. It doesn't really matter, but he's in that range. Really high, but not quite there yet, first year, and then just boom every single year. Hunter Renfro, 600 yards, 600 yards, 1,000 yards. Same thing. He's in that second category, mediocre, first year, eventually 1,000-yard receiver. Uh, Michael Pittman, who's in his second year. First year was 593 yards. Next year, boom, 1,000 yards. Chris Godwin, first year was 500, second year 800, and then he goes right to 1,300 yards. Second category. Jalen Waddell hit the ground running at 1,000. Bunch of receivers, rookie receivers, just crushed it. Brandon Ayuk, 748, uh, his second year 951. How much you want to bet he cracks 1,000 this year? In a tough situation with San Francisco, we'll see how that all turns out. But just following that pattern, I mean, we've seen it several times already, Right mediocre first year he's in that second category next year 900 not quite breakout but kind of and the next year is probably 1100 yards or so Terry McLaurin second category 919 and then 1100 yards followed that up with a thousand just an every year thousand yard receiver Devante Smith second category is a rookie 976 yards how much you want to bet he cracks a thousand this year Mike Williams is another one of the sort of outlier types. I believe he had some injury issues in his rookie year, but he still played in 10 games, started one, but only had 95 yards. But in year two, 774 yards and then 1,000. So I guess there's kind of this other category. I don't exactly remember what happened with Mike Williams, but happy to call that somewhat of an outlier. Keenan Allen hit the ground running 1,200 yards as a rookie. Brandon Cooks, his second category, year one, 550 yards, year two, 1,100 yards, and he's hit 1,000 yards every year except one in which, in which I'm guessing he was injured. Julio Jones, obviously being a freak, hit the ground running, 1,000 yards basically every single year, not including injuries and whatever's going on recently. Mike Evans hit the ground running. Odell Beckham hit the ground running. Amari Cooper hit the ground running. So again, with the exception of two outliers, the general path is of, of, of top wide receivers, there's two. One, you hit the ground running, whether that be, you know, uh, a good rookie year, but you're not quite there yet, 900 yards, and then you, then you kind of break out to your 1,100, 1,200 yards or whatever a year. Um, or you kind of get your one-year grace period, or, or not one year, but you, you hit that five, 600 yards, and, and within a year or two or maybe three, you eventually break out. But the point is, and that's not to say everybody that hits 500 yards is going to be a 1,000-yard receiver. I'm not making that point necessarily. I'm simply saying if you don't hit it, it doesn't look great for you. Because we can look at a lot of players that uh, don't hit it. The vast majority of wide receivers don't hit those marks. But guess what? They also don't go on to be these types of wide receivers. So if you're going to be the guy, based on, I mean, I went through every single player. I don't think I skipped anybody except a couple guys that have high grades that I don't even know who they are. I guess you could just look at everybody with 1,000 yards. There's just a handful more that cracked 1,000 this year. Hollywood Brown, year one, 700, year two, 900, year three, 1,000. That falls right in line with what we've seen with everybody else. Mediocre first year, take a second year leap. Third year is official breakout year. Christian Kirk, same thing, second category, 500 yards, 700 yards, 600 yards. So three years of kind of floundering, kind of the uh, Tyler Lockett phase. And then year four, 1,035 yards. Darnell Mooney of the Bears, 631 yards, and then 1,055. Second category. DJ Moore, second category. First year, 781 yards. The next three years, 1,100 yards. Finally, Deontay Johnson, 681 yards as a rookie. Then he follows that up with 1,000 yards and then basically 1,200 yards. So it's it's wildly consistent. Wildly consistent. And the bottom line is, if we want a Devontae Adams, and maybe that's not what we're looking for. Maybe we are fine with, with a just solid contributor. Give me a guy that gives me five, six, 700 yards, whatever, that's fine. But if we, if we think that there's a star in our midst, the odds are wildly stacked against any of our rookies becoming elite wide receivers if they don't crack 500 yards this year. If you're looking for an explanation as to why that may be, it's because good receivers are good receivers, I guess. It's, it's unlikely that you're going to get a guy that, that has that much talent and potential, even raw, that just sits on the bench and doesn't play. So if they got it, they're going to be on the field and they'll crack the four or five, 600 yards. That's just, and that's just the first hurdle. And then it's from there, where do you go? But they got to at least clear that. And so while I sit here and talk about, you know, they might have a redshirt year and they might not play all that much. They need to, they need to. So anyways, I'm going to leave it at that. Folks, have yourselves a fantastic day. I will talk to you tomorrow. Have a good one. Bye-bye.